Okay, welcome to another edition of the Edlo Podcast. I really should get some fancy music at this point. I've done like almost 100 of these, and it's been really well, going really well, but uh, yeah, I haven't done that yet. I've, I've actually, my 17-year-old is a guitar player, so I've been trying to get him to give me a little jingle, and you know, as 17s are, it's not top of his list. He's too busy goofing around. So, but eventually, I'll get there. Regardless, I have another very special guest here today. I have David R. Wilcox. David um, is uh, was heavily involved and was recruited to work as a well, the executive protection officer, which is basically a bodyguard for uh, the founder and president of the Christian Broadcasting Network, Pat Robertson, and eventually became director of security for the Christian Broadcasting Network. And um, you've written a couple of books, uh, one about Pat Robertson and one about Ralph Reed. And you have some very uh, interesting insights on basically, I would say they're probably the founders of the religious right, wouldn't you say? I'd have to agree with you. At the height of his popularity, I would say that Pat Robertson was probably the biggest lightning rod for televangelists and biggest, most controversial televangelist out there. Yeah, well, people my age, I mean, I grew up, I was born in 81, and I remember the 700 Club. It's still on, isn't it? It is. Um, I don't give it much of a lifespan now that Pat's gone, but uh, yeah, it's still doing its uh, daily thing. Yeah, so you've actually written two books, uh, one called Protecting Pat Robertson, Confessions of a High-Priced Bagman, and then also written a second book on Ralph Reed, called The Trial of the Devil Incarnate, Ralph Reed, God's Flim Flam Man. Right. That is, uh, that's a pretty salacious title <laughs> for for a man who, I mean, he's still pretty, pretty well, uh, well connected within the Republican Party. That's the fascinating thing about Ralph Reed. Um, I was very familiar with Ralph Reed. Uh, I started working for Pat in uh, 1985. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was a retired police officer from Southern California where I was born and raised. I got injured. I retired medically, uh, got married. Uh, and um, my wife at the time wanted to come to Virginia Beach, Virginia and work for CBN and wanted to work for the 700 Club. Hmm. And I thought, well, Okay, they got a grad school back there. Maybe I'll go back and get my master's degree. And so we did. We packed up. We came back to Virginia Beach and um, uh, got settled for about a week. And I wanted to get a job because grad school was just kind of in the evenings and uh, went to CBN um, financial aid area and put in an application. They looked at my resume and they said, oh, gosh, you've got uh, criminal justice background. You're a police officer. I said, yeah. And they said, well, gosh, your timing's really good. Uh, Pat Robertson, our founder and president, is thinking of run, running for president of the United States. And he's looking for bodyguards. He needs security people to, for his political action committee, which was going to be Americans for Robertson. So my two questions were, when do I start and what does it pay? And, <laughs> and uh, within a few weeks, I was... Um, working for CBN security, a guy named Jim Small was the head of security at the time, one of my best friends, if not my best friend now. And, and um, anyway, 
through all of that, I did run into Ralph Reed. Uh, the Christian Coalition was about a mile and a half down the road from the CBN complex. And for those of you who aren't familiar with CBN proper, it's a, a massive piece of land uh, right off Interstate 64 and Indian River Road in Virginia Beach. Um, started off with just a couple of buildings, and now it's it's huge. It's a huge complex. And um, I found myself running a dual role. I was going to grad school, and at the same time, come Friday night, I was traveling out across the country with Pat Robertson uh, for his uh, – political action committee called uh, Americans for Robertson. So yeah. I'd go out over the weekends. We do 15, 20 events, fly back in Sunday night, and then I'd go back to grad school for uh, my classes. So very dysfunctional. Wow. I guess so. So, but, but going through that, um, when you first met Pat Robertson, First of all, were were you particularly religious at the time? Yeah, I was. I'm, I'm a very strong believer, a uh, strong Christian. Um, I also have a very strong sense of morality. I guess coming from my police background, and I don't suffer liars and cheats very well. So, mm -hmm. uh, when I first met Ralph Reed over at the Christian Coalition offices, as I tell the story in my book. Uh, two things struck me. I, I flashed on Eddie Haskell, the, the guy from Leave it to Beaver, you know, hmm. the, the consummate, hmm. you know, two-faced wise guy. And I thought this guy is dangerous and smarmy. And hmm. that's your first meeting with him. That's my first 15 seconds of meeting the guy. And I had several interactions with him. He would come over to the CBM proper and be wandering around, you know, Pat's office. I'd see him through the hallways. And I just, I had, as a cop, you develop a, a, a sixth sense. We, we used to call it our bullshit detector. Kind of mm. goes goes off in your head when you first meet somebody, kind of like a klaxon horn. And, and sure. uh, I just had this overwhelming feeling that this guy was just duplicitous and mm. He'd look you in the eye and just tell you what you wanted to hear. And in Ralph's own words, I mean, you can you can Google him and find out. Some of his famous quotes are, uh, I like to operate from the shadows. I like to operate in darkness. Uh, I, I work by stealth. And when I sneak up on you, I'm paraphrasing, uh, by the time you realize I'm there, you're in a body bag. Hmm. And that was his, that's his kind of mantra. And um you know, I, I watched him operate. I, I researched him fully for the book. And uh, Pat Robertson had one fatal flaw during the time I was with him. And that was he had no discernment with people that he put in charge of many of his operations. Mm. I joked with him one day. It got so bad. Uh, I joked with him one day. I said, Pat, I said, you know, Charles Manson could drive up here in a Mercedes Benz, get out wearing a $1,000 suit and wearing a Rolex. You'd shake hands with him and make him a vice president. <laughs> what did he, he say to that? He said, I'm not that bad, am I? I said, yeah, you are. Man. And, and time and time again throughout my career with him, not only was I a bodyguard, but I kind of took it as my, my job to keep him safe from himself. Because he would tend to 
interview people for positions and they would say, oh, praise the Lord, we're going to make a lot of money for CBN and this ventures. And he would just, just get hooked. Mm. And mm. Uh, there was a time when he started a um, multi-level marketing uh, opportunity to, I'm kind of getting off track a little bit, but he was getting ready to start a multi-level marketing uh, business that was supposedly going to make a lot of money for CBN. And it was going to be called Benefits Plus. And it was a selling of a discount card that people could buy and it would afford them discounts 5% at Rite Aid or whatever, you know, Target, whatever. And um, we were in uh, Texas, in uh, Dallas, Texas, having lunch one day between events. And he said, oh, by the way, he says, I'm going to bring, uh, I'm going to bring in five people that are at the tops of their pyramids in multi-level marketing, they're going to come to work for CBN and Benefits Plus, and we're going to make a ton of money. <laughs> and, hmm. and I'd been with Pat quite a while, and I said, let me ask you a question, Pat. I said, I'm just a, basically a dumb security guard, but isn't the whole idea of multi-level marketing to get to the top of your pyramid and stay there? Said, well, yeah. I said, well, Explain to me why five people who are legitimately at the top of their respective pyramids are going to abandon all of that and come to CBN and work for a multi-level marketing that's a fledgling operation. Why are they going to do that if they're legitimately at the top of their pyramids? Well, they tell me they love the Lord. They're going to make it. Fine. I said, well, I take care of you, Pat. So when we get back to CBN from this trip, I'm going to run background checks on all these guys. Because I have a fiduciary capacity to to take care of you and CBN, not only you physically, but the money for the ministry. And he just kind of smirked and finished his cantaloupe for lunch. And when I got back, I ran background checks on him. Well, about a week later, I got the reports back and I couldn't have been happier. I walked across the hall to his office and he came out and I said, he said, what do you got there? I said, background checks on your multi-level, multi-marketing superstars. And there were fraud, embezzlement, conspiracy to commit fraud, uh, bounced checks. Uh, I mean, it was a rogues gallery of these people. And he looked at it. He came close to me and he said, I want them off the property in the next 30 minutes. I said, be my mm. pleasure. But this is mm. the type of discernment he failed to have. And it just it was a track record. But And he had the same discernment with Ralph Reed. Mm. Uh, Ralph uh, got into uh, the Christian coalition. He had no real experience uh, running an organization like that, but he's a great talker. And uh, in my book, I point out the fact that uh, he, and I'll say it very boldly, there's proof that he committed conspiracy, committed fraud, committed money laundering, uh, a couple of other crimes. He conspired with Jack Abramoff, and you can Google these names, Jack Abramoff and Michael Scanlon in a scandal called the Gimme Five Indian Fraud Conspiracy. And Abramoff, Jack Abramoff was a high-powered lobbyist in, in uh, Washington, D.C., after Ralph was forced to abandon the Christian coalition because he'd run it into the ground and, and had violated IRS laws and was on the verge of being investigated, he partnered up with Jack Abramoff 
and Michael Scanlon, and they conspired and they defrauded about a half dozen Indian tribes out of nearly $180 million. I've got proof positive in the book. I have canceled checks that were laundered. I have emails between the three of them, and it's ironclad. And this was just the tip of the iceberg for him. He, uh, he ended up getting involved in a number of scandalous things. Uh, and the thing, Josh, the thing that bothered me the most, I guess, is that Ralph, for a number of years at the Christian Coalition, presented himself as the last bastion of righteous Christianity. Mm. Mr. Clean, defending mm -hmm. the widows and the orphans, railing against gambling and, uh, you know, adultery and all of these things, raising millions and millions of dollars through the, through the Christian coalition. And then when he got done with the Christian coalition, he linked up with Jack Abramoff and he started getting involved in all these scandalous things. The money he made off of promoting and protecting Indian gambling casinos was unfathomable. And he did it all secretly after he was telling people from the Christian coalition, gambling's a cancer. Gambling is ruining Americans' homes. And then in the secret, he's representing a tribe called the Cushada Indians in, out of uh, Alabama, or I'm sorry, out of Louisiana, that were running a gambling casino. And, and they were afraid that some casinos opening in Texas were going to steal their thunder. So they hired Ralph Reed, Jack Abramoff, to run a covert operation to shut these casinos down. They shut down a casino in uh, uh, Texas called the Tigua Speaking Rock Casino. They were doing $6 million a, a month uh, in business. And the funds from that were taking care of the people in their tribe that were in destitute mm -hmm. poverty. They were paying for the medical treatment of the elderly. They were paying for scholarships for their uh, uh, youth. They were providing jobs for people in the reservation. And Ralph Reed organized a covert campaign and ended up shutting them down. But here's the worst part. Right after the, and, and the Tigwas had no idea it was Reed and Abramoff that were doing this to them. Three days after the tribe had to shutter their uh, casino uh, near El Paso, Abramoff shows up and says, hey, we've got a great plan. My pal Ralph Reed and Mike Scanlon and I, we, we got a plan. We can get you guys back open. Here's all we got to do. We've got a couple of legislators in our pockets. We're going to stick some legislative le uh, verbiage in a big, thick bill, hide it in there. And once the bill is passed, you can open up your casino again. And it's only going to cost you about $4 million. Would that be worth it to you? Hell yeah, it would. So they paid Reed. They paid the very people that got them shut down to try and reopen the, their, uh, their uh, casino. Man, I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg, Josh. Man, and so I'm passionate, I'm passionate about it because I just people got to know about this. Well, it sounds like it, and I can understand why. And and I want to go back real quick. Sure. So I want to go back to Pat Robertson, and sure. you know, you referenced in your book. You sent me some excerpts of your book, and I appreciate that. You you marked that there was a certain turn where he went from focusing on his ministry and humanitarian work yeah. 
And it kind of shifts away from that and it goes into wealth and power. And I want to go before that shift happens. It seems like okay. you knew him. Yeah. What was he like then? Pat was really an enigma. Uh, he, I don't know if people know his history. Um, Pat was born as a blue blood. His dad was a career senator hmm. from Virginia. Uh, his, by, by blood, uh, Pat was related to two sitting presidents, William Henry Harrison and Benjamin Harrison. Hmm. So his dad was a senator. He's he's related by blood to two sitting presidents. His mother was related by blood to Winston Churchill. Hmm. So he comes he comes from a pretty good bloodline, and he was raised uh, in the northern kind of northern Virginia area. Uh, he went to the best schools. Uh, ran in some pretty high social circles. Uh, he had a conversion uh, event in his life and uh, decided he was going to start the Christian Broadcasting Network. He started it with $7. Hmm. I'm sorry, I started with $3. $3 opened his bank account, and they asked him if he wanted the checks to go with his uh, account. He said, they said, yeah, I'll, I'll take some checks. They said, well, the checks are $7. So he opened <laughs> up in four dollars overdrawn but you know, <laughs> he grew it into a, a a great ministry and he had a really had a strong heart for ministry uh when i got there he was he had uh, groups called operation blessing they were a non-government uh, agency uh had uh, truckloads of, of uh, food and clothing and blankets and other material goods for uh you know Natural disasters. They, if there was a hurricane struck down in the south, they'd load the trucks up and rush down there. They were typically the first boots on the ground for taking care of you know people that were in trouble. Hmm. Um, and I really believed in it. I, I was a member of what was called the twenty five hundred club. Uh, hmm. I was giving twenty five hundred dollars of my salary to CBN because I really believed in what they were doing. Hmm. Uh, and things went along swimmingly until uh, politics reared its ugly head. Well, that's that's what I wanted to know was was it was there something that specifically happened that you're aware of? Maybe a life shift or something like that that shifted him away. You I mean you de you describe it in your book that he went away from ministry and humanitarian work to pursuit of wealth and power. Right. Was there something in his life that caused it? I don't think so, um, other than the other the other uh, Achilles heel that Pat had, and it wasn't really his fault, was that everybody or most people around him, I got to be careful, most people around him told Pat Robertson what they thought he wanted to hear mm. and not the truth. Uh, and... Pat was an intimidating guy. He's a former Marine. He's a former Golden Gloves boxer. He stood about six foot three at the height of his, you know, glory days. And he's a big dude. And he didn't suffer fools. And I think what happened was um, he, he had these mechanisms. Um, CBN set up a group back in 1981 called the Freedom Council. Mm. 
It was a tax-exempt status organization. It was supposedly to develop, be an educational outlet to inform Christians on how they could get involved in the political process and support their party, et cetera, et cetera. Can I, can uh, I stop you right there, though? Sure. So, so there are a bunch of different types of, you mentioned it kind of being a nonprofit. There's a 501c3 and then there's a 501c4. Right. So, so the, the the 501c3 corporation is one that really can't have anything to do with a political organization, but then, or or at least have it can't have political ties. Correct. The freedom the freedom council did so that was a 501c4, right? Correct. Okay. And CBN was a C3. Right, and they can't. So, for people who don't know okay. this stuff, for people who don't know this stuff. What that means is, is a 501c3, like, for example, anyone who's listening to here, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a 501c3. The reason that your churches, they sometimes you, you, they read all these things. Every government, you know, every, every election, they write a thing that everybody reads that says, we don't endorse a political party. We don't put a candidate. Everyone should choose their own thing is because they can't influence politics. They can't be involved in politics. Which is why when, you know, here in California, when the church was involved in Prop 8, it was quite a uh, controversial thing because the church looked at it as a moral issue, but it was using political ties to try to push something through and was heavily involved. And so, so anyway, that's, a, that's just a little bit of a lesson for people who are listening, what, what, what these things mean. So, so the Freedom Council is kind of a political organization to try to get out the vote. Right. Right. Okay. And and that's a great thing that you've clarified because it it really the reason I sent you some of that material today because it's a really Gordian knot mess and yeah it's super it's super tricky reading it reading it I go that's super tricky what they're doing yeah they're clever they're clever they Mm -hmm. they've been down this road a couple times they set up the Freedom Council as a C four. Uh, the ministry was already a C3, but uh, I used to, I used to joke that uh, Pat's uh, motto was "Ready, fire, aim." Mm. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. he'd hear of a thing, he'd go off half cocked, and then find out later, "Hey, we don't have the money to pay for that, or what are we going to do? You know, how are we going to make that happen?" Sure. So, and that's been an ongoing track record. But with the Freedom Council, they set it up. Uh, had pretty good people running it, and uh, but they didn't have a lot of money to get build this grassroots organization. They, they knew what they wanted to do, but they didn't have a lot of infrastructure. Well, as it turns out, that CBN created a thing they called Project Fifteen Zero Zero One Five on their mm. books. As it turned out, this was the Freedom Council. And what they were doing is the ministry was supplementing the Freedom Council. Eventually, it I think it ran up to about eight million dollars plus. Yeah, for the, and, people, and people who are listening, big no no. I oh, mean yeah. that's a that's a way that's a way for you to lose your five hundred one c three status real quick. And let me tell you, the the CBN tax exempt status was like considered the holy grail. You did not do anything to jeopardize the tax exempt status of CBN. Sure. In fact, I, that, in fact, you, there's, there's huge tax benefits to being a 501c3. Yes. I mean, you're not paying and, any taxes at all, really. Right. 
and remind right. me to tell you when that violation occurred because I was right mm. there and it just sickened me. Mm. Anyway, the Freedom Council was getting a lot of money thrown at them. If if they needed some walls moved in their offices, CBN sent their scenic people over. The ministry were on the ministry payroll. Uh, if they needed accounting done, CBN would provide it. But it was all cloak and dagger. It was all smoke and mirrors. It wasn't, you know, promoted very well. It was all done off the off the, you know, grid. Uh, IRS kind of got wind a couple of times. They threatened to do some investigations. At that point, and this is why it's such a mess. Occasionally, the Freedom Council would just close. Hmm. And then they'd open up the next day under a different name. I think one of them mm. was the Freedom Institute. And then there was another iteration of the Freedom Council. Anyway, they continued on and on and on and on. And finally, the handwriting was on the wall and they were going to get shut down. And this coincided around the same time that Pat's political action committee, Americans for Robertson, saw their handwriting on the wall. Hmm. And they uh, Super Tuesday came around. Pat did fairly well in the Iowa primary. I think he took second. Hmm. But when Super Tuesday hit, hit uh, it was painfully obvious that Pat Robertson was not going to be the Republican candidate. So what do you do when you've got this infrastructure, uh, the Freedom Council that's up, been up and running for a number of years, and you've got a collapsed political campaign organization and the Freedom Council had offices and computers and all this other stuff. Well, you throw them all into the hopper, you kind of mix them up and you create a third entity out of all the assets and it becomes a Christian coalition. Hmm. So now they bring in Ralph Reed, who Pat met at a, a dinner in Washington and again, here comes the lack of discernment. Ralph Reed's a great talker. He's a great, he's very charismatic. He's very articulate. He sells Pat on his capabilities. Pat offers him the job. He takes it. And suddenly he's got carte blanche to run the Christian coalition. Hmm. And it too was supposed to be a non-biased, non-partial educational organization. One flaw, they didn't play by the rules. Hmm. They started putting out these uh, uh, Christian coalition voter guides. And they sent out millions of these, distributed them through churches and through direct mail and everything. And they were just propaganda sheets to promote GOP candidates. In fact, in my book, I've got a copy of an itinerary where Ralph was meeting with uh, Mary Madeline to, dis to uh, d discuss the distribution of these uh, voter guides and also a fundraiser uh, and uh, direct mail campaigns and, and the like. It's all there in the book. I mean, it's hard copies of it. And uh, they violated their charter and uh, they were on the verge of investigation and a young lady named Judy Liebert, who was the chief financial officer uh, at the Christian Coalition, God bless her, because she at least had some morals and scruples. And she compiled all this information and 
and uh, Reed Reed was just looting this place. He had a friend of his that he put in charge of the direct mail campaigns for the Christian Coalition, and the guy was giving contracts, no bid contracts to his own uh, subsidiary businesses. Hmm. The guy who was in charge of the direct mail campaign for the Christian Coalition had his own direct mail printing and distribution mailing center. So he was giving himself the old contracts. Judy Liebert brought these, this to uh, Ralph Reed's attention. Instead of taking action on it, Ralph fired, fired her. Jeez. And then, so, he then he confiscated her computer, but she was smart enough to keep records apart from her computer. And he didn't do anything about it. So she took the records to the Federal Election Committee, Commission, and they were getting ready to start uh, um, an investigation. And Judy Liebert testified under oath that she observed Ralph Reed destroying evidence, shredding documents uh, that were going to incriminate him. And uh, then he fled, uh, ended up fleeing the Christian coalition like a scalded dog. And went into private practice as a lobbyist in a, in a you know, with uh, Jack Abramoff. So, question now: Pat Robertson is aware of all this, right? And so, so yeah. what is what is his view of Ralph Reed when this is going on? I guess. I guess. Let me. Let me. Let me open yeah. up to a broader question, which sure. is that. So your your two books really outlined the gross. Uh, corruption within the Christian Broadcasting Network, the Freedom, uh, the Freedom, what was it called? The Freedom Coalition, the Freedom, freedom Council, and the Freedom, freedom Council, Council and the Christian Coalition. The Christian Coalition, right? Which every I think everyone who's a political knows the Christian Coalition. It's a Absolutely. heavy, heavy wing of the religious yeah. right. So, how do these men who who have become men of they hold themselves out as men of God? Uh, do all these corrupt things. I mean, you're there. You're seeing it happen. How do they square that in their head? That's a mystery. Uh, let me let me just let me tell you one final story that really put it over the edge for me. It's a brief story. Okay. I was I picked Pat up. Another officer and I picked Pat up at his house, and we were supposed to be taking him to an event. And there was a slight sidetrack, and a guy named um, Mark Nuttall, who was Pat's campaign manager for Americans for Robertson, got in the car. And uh, uh, another gentleman who I really liked and admired was Rob Hartley. He was the vice president of development. Rob Hartley was basically the keeper of the keys to the donor list. Mm. He was the fun major fundraiser, the gatekeeper to the fundraising. And I'll try to paint a picture for you. It was the three of them were in the back seat. I was in the shotgun seat of the car, and, and then my other uh, officer was driving. And we pulled into a parking lot. We parked there. And you're probably not old enough to remember, but back in the day, they used to have these old time movies where the the hero of the story was at a crisis, and he had a little angel and a little devil on his shoulder. Oh, and I remember. And they lobby back and forth. You got to do it. No, you can't do it. You know, this and that. It's exactly what the scenario was. Pat was seated in the middle of the back seat. Mark Nuttall was on one side and Rob Hartley was on the other. And I was listening to the conversation. Mark Nuttall was 
pleading with Pat to release the three and a half million names of the CBN donor base, all the mailing, direct mail marketing information, to give that, give Americans for Robertson access because Americans for Robertson was hemorrhaging money, hmm. hemorrhaging money. They needed cash flow to pay the, pay the bills. So Nuttall's saying, Pat, we got to have that list. We got to have the donor list, the CBN donor list. It's critical. You're not, you won't be president without it. Rob Hartley on the other side is, Pat, you can't do that. It's illegal. You'd be risking CBN's uh, tax exempt status. The IRS will come down you like a ton of bricks. You can't do it, Pat. The other thing, Pat, that'll happen is they'll start getting solicitations from a political organization. And these are the little gray-haired old ladies who are sending $20 a month to you. And they maybe that's the only $20 they've got. So what do you think mm -hmm. they're going to do? Oh, Brother Pat's going to be president. Let's send him our, our CBN money this month over to Americans for Robertson. You know, the ministry's good. They, they can go without the money for a little bit. And it went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like, oh, my God, we are at such a crossroads right now. And I sat there and they they both lobbied him back and forth, back and forth. And there, there came this moment and it seemed like an eternity. And Pat turned to Rob Hartley and he said, give him the list. And we were done. Mm. Nuttall got out of the car. Rob Hartley got out of the car. We took Pat to his event. Fast forward through Americans for Robertson. And when Pat returned to CBN after his collapsed campaign, 630 employees had lost their jobs at CBN because of the cash flow. Hmm. Man. And that was the turning point because now Pat, Pat literally, when he got back, the halls were decimated. He would grab, Pat loved to write on yellow legal pads because he you know, had been uh, in law school. He would roam the halls and he would stop people in the hallways and he'd say, what is your name? What department do you work for? And what do you do here at CBN? And he'd make notes. And then he'd go home at night and he'd line through the ones that he wanted laid off. He'd write them out on a list. He'd bring it to his, his office the next morning. It would go to my boss at the time was Jim Small. And Jim had the horrible duty of walking around to all the vice presidents and say, here are the people that Pat once laid off. CBN mm. was in dire uh, straits. Man. And eventually 630 people lost their jobs because of that one decision. Hmm. And it devastated him. So now Pat has to go into recovery mode. He's thinking to himself, when I die, what's going to happen to my ministry, my baby? If I took, a, if I took a, you know, uh, three quarters of a year off and ran for president and I lost half my employees and the funding for them, what's going to happen when I die? So he starts he starts panicking. So he starts reaching out to uh, uh, Mobutu Sese Seiko, the butcher uh, dictator of Zaire. And we went on a trip over there. Uh, 
Mobutu had a public relations crisis on his hands. He needed to be seen with a man of God. And Pat needed to find a source for some revenue. Mm -hmm. So he went over there and he signs a contract, handwritten contract, to uh, uh, get involved in diamond mining in Zaire. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of money, if you can find the right amount of diamonds, and CBN could get some of that money. And, and he did the same thing. Um, with the, uh, oh, I can't think of the gentleman's name now. Um, he was the leader of, oh gosh, oh, uh, forgive me, I can't think of his name mm -hmm. at the moment. But, um, he was a another uh, butcher dictator, and uh, he was a later convicted by a tribunal by the international courts for uh, uh, crimes against humanity. He Man. killed thousands and thousands of people. And Pat Pat had a gold mining deal with him. Hmm. And I'm thinking, what in the world is this Baptist minister doing partnering with these brutal dictators? Did you and ever I, did you did you ever ask him? No. Well, no. I, I made a comment to him. I made a comment to him. I told him one day we were walking. I said, Pat, I said, I don't know why you keep getting involved in all these things. Because there's an old saying that you dance with the one that brought you to the dance. And you didn't get mm -hmm. to where you were because of diamond mining and all this other stuff. You got here because of ministry. That's where you need to focus. And he just, Pat, Pat, I think, treated me very fairly. But he just looked at me as kind of just a big piece of meat that kept him safe. Did you you so did you uh, remember a distinct difference in his presence uh, when this shift happened away from focusing on the ministry and the humanitarian work and shifting more to wealth, power, and politics? What it, what happened to the man? He he kind of seemed to lose his warmth. I don't know if that makes sense. It does, because that's um, the thing that's so interesting about this, and and, and I've, I've seen it, right? And I, I think, because I'm a religious guy, and I think yeah. we all go through waves, right? We all go through waves of times when we're closer to God and farther away from God, right? Depending on what's going on in our lives. And I could just see a situation where, you know, he probably, I mean, well, let me let me ask you, I mean, you were there. Do you think that in his mind, Pat Robertson thought being president would bring more to the gospel, more to, you know, Christian ideals and be better for everybody if I did this and he got kind of caught up in the weeds? Yeah, I think so. I think he had this grandiose idea that uh, he was going to become president. Uh, he would have a universal pulpit from which to, you know, uh, spread the word. And um, it, it was an interesting thing, Josh, because um, when he set up Americans for Robertson, uh, and I still to this day don't know why, but he tended to hire believers who didn't necessarily have any experience for their jobs. Mm. Or a long track record. They weren't a lot. A lot of them weren't really political, set, politically savvy, but mm. they were very sweet, nice Christians and believers. Mm. And um, 
you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, some of them ended up being very capable. Connie Snap, who was his media person, I mean, I I wanted to build a little shrine to her. She was just, mm -hmm. you know, wonderful at her job. But there were other people that just couldn't hit their both hands if they fell on it, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were inept. And the other thing, too, was they weren't focused on doing the right thing. A um, cu couple of things happened. One day I got a call about a guy from a guy. I, I used to have to screen calls. People wanted to talk to Pat. The switchboard would generally, if they were emphatic about it, they would switch the call to me and I'd kind of pre-screen things. And I got a call from a guy who was a printer in, I believe it was Sacramento, California. And there's, it's in the book. Uh, and he was, he was desperate. And he found out that Pat was going to be coming to Sacramento. And he, and he made it very clear to me that he was going to show up and cause a lot of problems for him because Americans for Robertson owed him like $70,000 for printing jobs. And he was getting ready to lose his business because they hadn't paid him in months and months and months. Hmm. And, and I was incensed. I mean, I was like, come on, man. I mean, I, I'd go on these trips and they'd send six, seven, eight people on the, these trips. They'd put them at nice hotels and give them per diems and all this stuff. Somebody's got some money somewhere, but you don't, you don't run up a, a $70,000 tab for a mom and pop printer to print your yard signs and everything and then not pay the guy. Right. So he got desperate and started making threats. So I, I went over to across the hall to uh, Pat's office and he wasn't in. I went to Barbara Johnson, who was a saint of a woman. She's still with us. But, uh, and I said, Barbara, we got a problem. And I said, AFR, Americans for Robertson, owes this guy like $70,000 and they haven't paid him in months. He's getting ready to get his house foreclosed. His wife's leaving him. He's desperate. Hmm. She grabbed his her purse and we rode, rode over to Pat's house and she went in and told him about it. And God bless Pat. He got on the phone and, and you know, they said they were going to send him a check the next day, FedEx. But that's just indicative of the the lack of moral fiber that some of these people had in the campaign. Mm -hmm. And it, and Pat Tennant surrounded himself, surround himself with people like that. And when he Did went into politics, he got, he got cold. That's the mm -hmm. best word I can give you. He lost what was his it? fatherly image. So now I wanted to ask you, that's another question I wanted to ask you is that you mentioned like a fatherly image and all these things. And you hear about some people who they're different on TV than they are within than they yeah. are in person or when they're when the cameras are shut off. Yeah. Was that was that the truth with with Mr. Robertson as well? Pretty much. Yeah. Um, what was he yeah, like off the air? Uh, Pat was an absolute dictator. Mm. Uh, he wanted everything uh, perfect right now. And zero mistakes. Uh, he did not lavish anybody with compliments. Uh, he expected absolute perfection. He had a, a board of uh, directors that were pretty much just sycophants. I mean, I used to joke about the fact that Pat could wake up and say, hey, I want all the buildings painted pink by tomorrow. And they go, oh, great, great idea. Let's do it, Pat. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. no challenge no challenge to anything he wanted to do. And um, he, 
I'll give you an example. We would go out with the security team and we would do maybe a, a weekend of events. We might do 16, 17, 18 different events in a, a given city. And if everything went perfect, immaculate, no delays, no problems, the last night when we were walking him back to his suite and we were getting him secured for the evening, if you heard the words, that went well, that was it. That was the epitome. Mm. That was like, we can go to sleep tonight knowing we, we did an A number one, 100% great job. Never would lavish you with compliments, but man, if you screwed up, uh, there was a, a trip we went on to Jacksonville, just Pat and myself, and uh, we were doing three events that night, and he was supposed to give a speech at the, a little convention center there and a, a radio interview. And we were the first event we were going to do was called a grin and grip. He was going to meet with a bunch of high rollers, shake hands, grin and grip and circulate. We got in the car. Uh, he had written his speech. He had a little, little paper notebook. He put it in the car. We got to the first event. He said, I'm going to leave this here in the car. I said, fine, I'll lock it up. We went upstairs, did the event, came back down. The notebook was still there. We drove over to the convention center, and there was a radio trailer there uh, for him to do his radio interview before his speech. He gets out of the car, and I'm leading him over there, and he starts screaming bloody murder. Hmm. Where's my speech? You lost my speech. And I'm like, God, I thought he was being shot or something. Hmm. I said, what are you talking about? I said, it's in your hands. This isn't my speech. You lost my speech. I'm thinking, how the hell did I lose your speech? I haven't even touched it. Hmm. So he's, I said, Pat, I said, I'll go find you. Well, where are you going to look? And he says, I got to give a speech here in a, you know, 30 minutes. I don't have my speech. I said, get into your interview, secure the door. I'm going to go find your speech. And I was like, dear God, there you are. I drove back to the hotel. There it was on his bed. No, oh, jeez. Grabbed it. I rode back. Got there because he was coming out of the interview. I said, "Here's your speech." What? Well, where'd you find it? I said, "It was on your bed in your room at the hotel, and it was a, a same colored notebook as the one he had." He just looked at. It, he goes, "Well, it's an easy mistake. It's the same color." And he walked off. Didn't apologize. Wasn't contrite. Anything. So that was kind of the. The environment is you just prayed every day that everything went well, because even if things were out of your control, you were the one standing four foot, foot from him and you were the one going to get the shrapnel. So his famous television show was the 700 Club. Yeah. And perhaps you could tell us what it was like being on set uh, as they recorded the 700 Club. If people can find it. There are probably some YouTube videos out there. It was a live broadcast and uh, in Studio 7. Quite often there was a live studio audience, but sometimes there wasn't. And every once in a while, something would kind of go askew. There was something that Pat didn't like. Something Pat hated fat, fat people. He hated fat people? Uh, like, no like when, you, well, when you say fat people, do you mean like morbidly obese or you mean just a little chubby yeah. yeah got a few extra pounds 
he uh, was he a, was he a particularly skinny guy? No, fat. That's fat, what I was saying. He was kind of fat, fat, wasn't he? Pat had packed on a few extra lbs, but yeah. yeah but um, he he there are got to be some video clips out there. Pat would be on the set. And he'd be you know leaning into the camera in her his little chair, fatherly pose, and say well, you know. Well, we're we're gonna break away for a, a you know we're gonna see this testimony now about the law of reciprocity and they'd cut to a video package for five or six minutes. There'd been something going on and he was mad. He'd call his floor producers over and just ream them. I mean, yeah. just, and he had a he had a way of just making you feel minuscule. And every once in a while, he didn't wasn't aware he'd gone long, and he wasn't aware that they were signaling him that they were going to come back live. Mm. So he'd be in profile, reaming somebody out, and all of a sudden they'd be, you know, the, the camera's light would come on, and he'd be live over the air. And oh, well, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Seven Hundred Club, you know. And these poor producers would slink off into the the darkness, you know, with their bloody rear ends from having them chewed, you know? So it was, and that's why, that's why I'm taking a lot of heat for these books right now. I posted some stuff on my Facebook page and a lot of my coworkers and stuff just, you know, let me have it. You're a traitor. You're, you know, I hope you enjoy your blood money, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, what I'm doing is I'm paying for the fact that they're all buying into the image of Pat Robertson that they see on the 700 club. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was a bloody tyrant at times, you know, and uh, it was not pleasant. In fact, that's why, that's why uh, Jim small, my predecessor uh, running the department left. He had just had it. He'd had it with the, the chewings and the, and not being able to meet the standard every day. And, the stress was killing him and it was killing me too. But so, uh, so can I ask you, because sure. I'm sure people are going to be listening to this because you, you have a pretty, uh, uh, you know, I guess unfavorable view of Pat Robertson. Uh, wait, what is it that caused your departure? Were you, did you quit? Were you fired? What happened? I started work back in 85, uh, I worked for several years, but I was also going to grad school hmm. and I was getting my master's degree. I was animating a film that eventually won a, the first student Academy award for the university. It was a little hmm. fil film called if your eye offends the, and I had to finish this to get my degree. So I separated myself from the security department for a while, went back out to California, finished my film and at that point, I realized, gosh, CBN's got all the mechanisms and infrastructure to start their own animation studio. And that's what my specialty was, was animation. So I wrote a proposal for CBN to start uh, an animation division, and they liked it. And they called me and they said, come back and start your animation studio, which I did. Well, one day I was at the studio and I got a call from Pat's office. And... Uh, they asked me to come over and I thought, well, this can't be good because Pat never calls people over to praise them for anything. So mm. kind of things are going through my mind, you know, am I going to get fired, shut the studio down or whatever? I got there and Pat came out of his office and he says, David, brother, he says, uh, Jim Small just resigned as head of security. 
And he tells me there's only one person here that can keep me alive, and that's you. And I'm wondering if you'll take over the department and uh, then maybe find a replacement uh, for Jim. I said, well, Pat, I've never denied you anything before, so sure, I'd be honored, and I'll do what I can do to help you. Well, uh, that day I took over both departments. And talk about a dichotomy. I, my office, both my offices were on the, the second floor of the World Outreach uh, Center. And I would leave the, stu the security office. I'd walk down the hall carrying my handgun on my, on my hip, walk into the studio, and we'd have these creative animation meetings talking about what kind of gags can we put in this piece of animation? How can we do this? You know, and then I didn't get much pushback from my animators because I'm packing heat, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd go back down the hall and, and tend to security issues, which are cut and dry. There's no flexibility in security. It's rules and sure. regulations. Sure. So it was very dichotomous. And I was working 18-hour days. And I just eventually got to the point where Pat and I were on a flight one day. And I told him, I said, look, I, I couldn't... Josh, I couldn't find a replacement for, for Jim Small. Mm. I interviewed probably a half a dozen retiring Secret Service agents for Pat. And I found some great qualified people. I couldn't think of anybody better than Secret Service agents. Mm -hmm. And the bulk of them came and looked at what they had to work with. And they said, I'm not taking this job. It's suicide. You're, you have no walls. You have no controls. It's, people are free to come and go. The other ones that made it to an interview with Pat, he just he just dropped them. He'd come out and just give me a thumbs down. Hmm. And I said, what, what, what's wrong with that guy? He goes, he had no personality. Hmm. He said, I can't work with a guy like that. I said, Pat, you want a guy to keep you alive or tell you jokes? <laughs> what do you want? Right. You know, I keep bringing these guys in here. You know, eventually we were on a flight and I just said, look, Pat, I said, I can't, I can't handle both jobs anymore I'm, I'm about ready to have a stroke over it mm. so and he just he just looked it over his glasses at me he says well this is this is typical pat robertson response he says i run 10 or 12 major organizations i don't know why you can't just write run uh, two lousy departments hmm. i said pat i said when you ask people to do things a dozen vice presidents will kill themselves trying to get it done for you when I want something done, a dozen vice presidents come to me and say, who's going to pay for it? I say, I can't, I can't do both. He said, all right. He says, you got a lot of talent in that animation stuff and I can get any big lug to keep me alive. Hmm. And that Man. was my thanks. So, Man. Yeah. So, you so end up I, just, you end up just leaving completely? Yeah, I left security. Uh, I uh, got a couple of nice opportunities to produce and direct some one-hour animated Christmas special and an Easter special with some studios in uh, uh, Shanghai and uh, Taiwan. And I, I think statistically, the projects have probably evangelized about a fifth of the world's population, which is a good legacy. Mm. But then I just said I'd had enough. Mm. And they were, they were getting ready to lay me off. Uh, turned out that the guy who eventually became my boss had been a guy I had started an investigation on for some irregularities, and I just decided it was time, and I mm. went in other adventures. So, 
going through this, I mean, seeing all this, what did this do? You mentioned you were a man of faith, um, which is part of the reason why you joined Christian Broadcasting Network. What did this uh, What did this do to your faith, working with these people who were so, I guess, uh, two-faced would be a good way to describe it yeah, and, and possibly hypocritical? That's yeah. a good term. Yeah. I wrote about it in the book, in the preface to the book, and I, I even commented that people were going to accuse me of having abandoned the faith, lost my faith. If anything, it strengthened it. And it taught me one thing. It taught me that God is an amazing, amazing God. He doesn't need me to go and sit in a brick and mortar building on Sundays and worship him. He just wants me to be real with him. He wants me to talk with him. He wants me to express my fears and my joys and my sorrows and my happiness. And I don't need a Pat Robertson to be an intercessor for me. I don't need a pastor uh, to... I think I mentioned something like point his bony finger at me in church and warn me about the evils of internet pornography when 70% of sitting pastors right now have an internet porn problem. I don't mm. need to be chastised by somebody. I don't need to be having is that a legitimate people. is that a legitimate statistic? 70%? The, last, the last stats that I looked up was 68% of sitting pastors of pa active pastors are somehow involved in internet pornography. That is an obscene amount. And I wonder, well, yeah. you, I mean, I wonder if that is also indicative of just the percentage of men as well. I, I used to theorize about it and I thought, God, man, this seems so high, but a lot of pastors will counsel you know, their parishioners about the evils of pornography. And I have to think maybe that some of them just wanted to get a look and see what it's all about. Mm. But it's so, it's so leech-like. I mean, I had a, I had an issue with it mm. Mm. for a couple of years, you mm. know, and I'll be very honest. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's, it's like being in a whirlpool. You yeah. I have with it. I have a 17-year-old son because I know I've worked, served in leadership in my church, yeah. and uh, I know that that is a pretty prevalent problem. And yeah. I've seen lives be utterly destroyed, yeah. I mean, from that. So I have a 17-year-old son, and, I, and I've told him, uh, I've said, listen, you know, I know that everybody tells you to stay away from drugs. I was like, I, uh, if I, you know, I've seen more people's lives be destroyed by internet, you know, porn addiction than a Coke addiction. I mean, my, I come from a family of addicts. So, I mean, my dad, you know, he had a, he had a bad uh, drug addiction problem that he, he re has recovered from and, and has been recovered for a long, long time. And I have a whole family full of them, but I've seen more lives be destroyed by, you know, internet porn addiction than any other drug out there. I mean, it's really scary. And to think that yeah. there's that such a high percentage, it's just, that's scary. They say that they say that the high that the brain gets from it is like worse than cocaine. Yeah. And you never really achieve that high again. And uh, I, I got involved in a local ministry here helping, helping men 
that were addicted to it. And, I mean, it's it's a tough nut to crack, but uh, it really is. But, but you know what? I, I think there's another way that you can look at this, though, and I think you can look at this maybe even in a way with Pat Robertson, and, and, and you know, because because I I look, I being Mormon, I know that Pat Robertson was not necessarily a fan of my church. So, um, but I do think that I I bet he got into the Christian broadcasting network and everything with a good intention. I agree. But I think, but I think what it's important for people who are listening to this to remember, because I'm sure, you know, this is going to turn off a lot of people, uh, you know, is that all these men are not perfect. They're still humans. They make right. mistakes. Um, some more egregious than others. And isn't it interesting that the people who are the most charismatic tend to also be the ones that that fall the fall the hardest? Yeah, because we, I think we as humans and kind of the base population, we tend to put them on pedestals. Everybody wants a hero in their life. Everybody mm-hmm. wants a you know somebody that's at the top of the pedestal. You know, that's got it all, apparently got it all together, you know, mm-hmm. and they speak truth to you. You know, they speak success to you and all this stuff. And and then when the moment comes, when the when the varnish comes off and, you know, you start seeing the chinks in their armor, it's it's kind of a double gut, uh, gut sock, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, my God, you know, so and so, you know, fell from his pedestal. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm crushed. I mean, I had all my. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, some of these people that will read the book about Pat or Ralph Reed and say, "My God, I gave, you know, my twenty dollars a month to CBN for, uh, you know, twenty years, thinking they were doing all those great things, and, uh, you know, it was all smoke and mirrors." Can I tell you one other story that really kind of put me over the edge? Oh yeah, let's hear it. And this is and this still kind of sickens me. Um, Pat had started. Uh, I, I mentioned him earlier. A group called Operation Blessing, mm-hmm. and they did some really wonderful works. Mm-hmm. And Pat, uh, I don't know exactly the time frame when this happened, but. Uh, Oh, Charles Taylor is the other guy I was thinking about, the other brutal dictator, Charles Taylor. But anyway, Pat uh, was very familiar with what was going on in Zaire. He had done some diamond mining over there and uh, abysmal failure. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he uh, hears that there's a uh, cholera outbreak, uh, a bunch of Rwandan refugees estimated to be up to a million refugees were flooding out of Rwanda and seeking asylum in Zaire. They were living out on the plains, the, the dirt, and there was mm. a, a cholera outbreak. And I mean, people were dying left and right from cholera. So never to let a good crisis go to, go to waste, uh, Pat gets on the air and starts telling people for the 700 Club that he wants to send teams of doctors. He's going to get some aircraft and t- send teams of doctors over to Zaire, and they're going to help treat these people, save them from this cholera outbreak. 
and he's asking people to pledge money for Operation Blessing, and they're going to do all this humanitarian aid. And they even set up a, a, a he had this he had this plane called the Flying Hospital, which again was the ready fire aim scenario. <laughs> they they, uh, they equipped this L ten eleven as a state of the art flying hospital, and then realized it was too big to fly in the most made uh, most airports and land, especially <laughs> small airports where they needed, you know, help. Anyway, so he's raising millions and millions of dollars are coming in for this Operation Blessing Rwanda cholera outbreak. Turns out that he bought three caribou kind of puddle jumper planes with the Operation Blessing logos on the tails and hired a chief uh, pilot and this is all in the book. The chief pilot says out of uh, several dozen air missions that they flew over there, uh, about 80 some percent of them were to haul diamond mining dredges, equipment and supplies for his diamond mining company called African Development Corporation. Mm -hmm. The people on the ground in Rwanda, I think it was Dr. Doctors Without Borders or Doctors Frontier, uh, one of the non-governmental agencies that's done great humanitarian work. They were on the ground there. They said all that CBN sent over were Bibles and Tylenol. Wow. And they pointed out the fact that they said we had so much Tylenol, <laughs> we could have been throwing it at people. And mm -hmm. you don't use Tylenol to treat cholera. Right. And they said CBN had one tent and about six people over there. And they were just walking around with Bibles. And that was their humanitarian aid. The, the millions that were raised for that were going to fund this diamond mining operation. In fact, there's mm -hmm. pictures in the book of them offloading a dredge out of the back of one of the caribous with the Operation Blessing tail uh, insignia on it. The pilot got fed up. I mean, he kept a detailed log of every every flight that they made. Mm. And he said very little was done in the way of humanitarian aid, but he's raising money under the guise that we're going to save all these lives uh, you know, from, who are suffering from cholera. And it, it just wasn't the, the truth. So knowing these things, what is your, I mean, you write these books. What is the message that you're hoping that people get from your work? Don't put your trust in man. Mm. Have a relationship with God. Mm. God, God's a universal constant. I mean, I believe wholeheartedly in God. I think mm -hmm. God has treated me very, very well throughout my life. I had basically no father growing up and a, a mother that was just not very functional. And uh, I actually heard from God back in my earlier days. He said, I'm going to be your father. And I'm going to take care of you, but you're going to have to be patient. And mm. that works for me. And it's worked out that way for me. I just got very, very tired of people putting these people on pedestals and trusting with their, with their uh, money and their donations and their allegiance and having it not necessarily be the truth. Yeah. 
And I'm a, I'm a seeker of the truth, man. I, I just, I, I just, the nice thing about telling the truth is you, you don't have to remember it. It's just there, you know, you yeah. tell lies, you got to remember, well, what lie did I tell that guy? What lie did I tell that guy? This is all the truth. Everything in all my books is documented. Everything mm -hmm. in the Ralph Reed book is documented. I've got uh, photos of the uh, checks, $360,000 checks that he laundered. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, 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 it's just, it baffles me uh, how these people can function at night and sleep at night. But uh, I would just tell people, uh, whatever your religion, whatever your religious belief and pursuit is, believe in God and uh, talk to God. But don't put your faith in man. Mm. Man will disappoint you. And that's pretty much the bottom line. Now, some people are going to ask this question, and I have to ask you sure. uh, because I know they're going to wonder this. Political affiliation. Do you consider yourself a Republican, a Democrat, something in between? I used to be a very staunch Republican, mm. but when I read the, I read, I wrote and researched the Ralph Reed book and a little bit of the Robertson book, I found out that there was a lot of corruption uh, back in both Bush presidencies, and uh, uh, I just kind of lost my belief in the Republican platform. And right now, if anybody asks me what I am. I'm, I consider myself what's called a reciprocist. Mm. I treat what? people the way that they treat me. I don't care about their political persuasion. I don't really don't care about their, mm. their beliefs. If they treat me with respect, I will treat them with respect. If they're disrespectful mm. to me, I'll be disrespectful to them. It's kind of the golden rule. Yeah. And, and uh, that's, it's simple, but it works. But this thing about parties, I just think there is so much corruption on every side of the aisle. When you've got when you've got people in Congress that are supposed to be there serving the people and they're doing insider trading and they're walking out of a, a job that pays one hundred and sixty thousand dollars a year. And after a couple of years, they're a gazillionaire, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, and they're on certain committees and stuff. Something's out of whack, Josh. Right. And, and, I, and I, what, I don't have much faith. Well, what blows my mind with stuff like that is not only those things, but also things like, you know, they they leave office and then they do, you know, like like you said, Ralph Reed leaves and becomes a, rob, a, a lobbyist making a ton of money in, in yeah. you know, they, they take these private firm jobs that make a bunch of money and then bounce back and forth in between them. I mean, Donna Brazil is a great example on the Democratic side where she... She she leaves the Democratic Party, goes and becomes a CNN analyst, feeds feeds the questions to Hillary Clinton before a debate. Oh yeah, gets caught, gets fired, and then becomes the chairperson of the De Democratic National Committee. And that stuff happens on the Republican side too. I mean, yeah. it's really shocking to to see how corrupt it is. And um, well, let me so, tell you one. Let me tell you one more quick Ralph Reed story that'll prove your point. Hmm. In 2004 and 2005, there was a Senate investigation. It was called the Gimme Five Indian Scandal. Mm -hmm. It involved Jack Abramoff, uh, Michael Scanlon, a bunch of people, and Ralph Reed. And it was an investigation into their bilking of these Indian tribes out of $180 million. Mm -hmm. 
It was led by John McCain. John McCain led the committee, the Senate Investigative Committee. In fact, a lot of this stuff I used as reference in the book. Ralph Reed, uh, Abramoff, Reed, uh, Abramoff, Scanlon, and a bunch of their Confederates were all subpoenaed. They testified before the committee, and a lot of them ended up going to jail as a result of it. Uh, Abramoff went to prison for a couple of years. So did Scanlon. So did some people that had a lot less involvement than Ralph Reed. Ralph Reed was mentioned over 100 times in the transcripts. Uh, emails, emails that committed to approved conspiracy, uh, canceled checks, uh, testimony of other people admitting that they laundered money for him. Ralph Reed never was subpoenaed. He never appeared before the committee. He never was called to testify. And somebody, and I, I lay it out all in the book, somebody within the Republican Party who had a lot of chops, who had a lot of leverage, worked directly with the president, pulled some strings with John McCain and put some pressure on him, and a subpoena was never issued for Ralph Reed to appear. Why yeah. is that? So the structure of my book about Ralph Reed, and the reason I call it the trial of the devil incarnate, is I created a new Senate committee made up of fictitious senators, and they have Ralph Reed under oath. And I show a courtesy to Mr. Reed, the same courtesy that was afforded Jack Abramoff. I allow him to take the fifth after every question, but my fictitious senators ask him all about his business dealings, all about his involvement in the fraud and in, in the uh, money laundering. And, stuff. and they present all the evidence and it's ironclad. And if you read that book and don't ask yourself, why the hell isn't Ralph Reed in prison? You haven't read it full enough. Mm. And so you got to ask yourself, I, I, I came to this revelation that there's corruption on all sides. Politics mm. is a dirty dirty business yeah and, and, and i think what happens is, is people get in there with good intentions but come out just another shark in the dirty water well you know? it's like the you know it's uh the mr smith goes to washington uh scenario you get somebody who's clean and wants to come in and make a good mark and do some things for the people that elected him you can't get anything done right unless you play the game right unless you take some take some uh you know, lobbying money and you compromise, you get into bed with people and and suddenly your morals are gone. And that's the only way you can make. I've known I've known people that have gone into Congress for two years, tried to do them, haven't done a damn thing because they, they won't play the, the game. They won't get anything passed because they're not, you know, shaking hands with one and putting money in the pocket with the other. So, uh, you know, the read thing. I'm still baffled why he was never subpoenaed to testify. I know the answer. It's in the book. Mm. But uh, he, I keep telling my wife, I said, you know, when the Reed book starts to get popular, uh, if if I show up missing and I'm found in an oil drum floating in Lake <laughs> Michigan, you're going to have to know who your suspects are because I'm Man. blowing the wood off it. I'm telling the truth because it's all out there. And it's it, here's the thing, Josh, it's all been printed before. Hmm. It's been printed by major periodicals. It's been printed in uh, Senate transcripts. It's been printed in newspapers, in books. 
but I'm the only one that gathered it all together and put it in a cohesive form and laid it out sequential because Reed is a master of disguise. His own quotes are, I like to work from the shadows. Hmm. I'm a a stealth fighter. You won't know I've been there till you end up in a body bag. These are, these are Ralph Reed quotes. This is the way he works. He likes to stay hidden because there's protection for him. But sure. This book's going to shine the light of truth on him. And the quote the, the quote I use in, in the book is a quote from Elvis Presley. He says, truth is like the sun. You can hide it for a while, but it's going to come out eventually. Mm-hmm. And here it comes because it's all there yeah. in black and yeah. white. Man. I, hope, I hope Ralph Reed sues me. Mm-hmm. I love Ralph Reed to sue me. I'd love to get him under oath. And and pull a little discovery on him, this you mm. know subpoena his business records, subpoena his tax records. Well, if he does, you let me know because I'd be interested to watch the trial. So that I'm, I'm, I'm gonna hire you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I appreciate. Listen, I appreciate you giving us information, sharing this stuff. Um, where can people find your books? Well, easiest way would be to go to Amazon and go to the book section and type in. Protecting Pat Robertson or The Trial of the Devil Incarnate, and they'll come popping right up. Uh, I've got a little bit of a, a website. I'm not the most internet savvy guy on the planet. Got a little bit of a, a website called uh, it's www.bigfatcatbooks.com. They can read about some of the reviews on the books there, and they can click a button if they want to order a copy. Uh, but Amazon's probably the best venue. And uh, I just encourage people to, to get a copy, read it, decide for themselves, decide if I've been fair. Because uh, the book, the Robertson book starts off telling just a bunch of humorous vignettes of what it was like to work with Pat, you know, mm-hmm. the, the funny side, the quirky side, the mean side. And then there's this transitional phase where the politics came in. And then it's mm-hmm. the scandalous stuff. So get the books, uh, read them for yourself, and start spreading the word about uh, Ralph Reed. I I think the public has a right to know. I'll tell you what, if I had spent my hard-earned money promoting the Christian coalition back in the day, I'd be kind of upset. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'll leave you with that because it's just let people decide for themselves. I mean, I don't hate the man. I just think he's – uh, well, let me close it with a, a quote from the Huffington Post. Mm. Ralph Reed is one of the most monumental hypocrites of our time. Mm. And this is supposedly the vast, last bastion of Christian virtue. He's still doing what he's doing. He's running a thing called the Faith and Freedom Coalition out of Georgia. He's raising money. He's supporting the GOP. And the people writing those checks, they need to know what his background is. Yeah. And the 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 lewd and lascivious and illegal campaigns that he's led over the last 30 years, they're all in the book. Mm-hmm. They're all documented. So, yeah. Josh, I really appreciate the opportunity to share the truth. Yeah, no, and I appreciate you coming on. This has been very interesting for those who've uh, listened. Uh, go by, go to uh, bigfatcatbooks.com or Amazon. Check out the books. And, of course, uh, subscribe. We got a much more uh, fun stuff coming up. And so uh, until next time, David, uh, appreciate you coming on. My pleasure.